I want to do two things before we do. I do want to address what's happened in our country over the last week as your pastor in just a second. And then we're going to open up to Ruth chapter 3. So we've got some work to do. Would you pray with me as we open up God's Word? Father, we uh, come before you knowing that we need your Holy Spirit to blow afresh in our lives, to stir our affection for Jesus, to remind us of the gospel and what it has done with our identity and our past and what it has promised and secured for us in our future. Give us the ability within you as we come to your word uh, to find reason for contentment as we trust and faithfully walk alongside you on this journey called life. And at the end of the day, God, we pray that we would be more in love with Jesus at the end than we are in this moment in the beginning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said. Uh, I do find it a humble honor to be your pastor. For some of you, this may be your first time here. Welcome. We are humbled and honored that you've chosen to learn more about Jesus with us and perhaps even worship and uh, respond and grow in relationship with him. This past week, uh, our country went through another, what seems to be too familiar, devastating scene uh, with several children at school uh, who didn't come home uh, because a 19-year-old decided to go in and take out his rage and whatever else was going on within him there. And there's all sorts of opinions on social media, and I do not engage in times like this on social media because I don't think there's much of a difference that's going to be made or a change that's going to happen there. It can get to a point where you as a follower of Jesus or as just a citizen in this country, you can get jaded, apathetic, indifferent. You can demonize groups of people that look at these tragedies and scenarios differently. And I feel as your pastor, it's my job to point to the theological and bigger picture. And not because it's going to fix this, but I do think theology helps us to understand how a good God could allow such a injustice to happen. Like, why not intervene there, God? Why not stop that shooter there, God? Why allow that to happen? And so I don't know that this is necessarily meant to remedy or answer all the questions that you do have, but I do think it points to the good God that sits over all of time and creation in the midst of what seems to be an out-of-control season in our lives. Uh, in the beginning, God created. That's the beginning of our Bible. Uh, it suggested that God in the beginning created this thing called time. And within the construct of time, God was sovereign over its creation and over all of it. So we know biblically that there is a beginning Genesis and a revelation ending that comes. Time is marked by Genesis and Revelation. It has a day and a time. But we're told that in the end, Jesus comes to rectify all the injustice that we see in the world and bring time to a close. That's when eternity begins. Heaven is there. We enjoy God forever. There's no more tears. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. There's no more sin. There's no more destruction. There's no more hate. There's no more bigotry. There's no more injustice. This is done away with. It's thrown into what is described as a lake of fire. And then eternity begins in not the self-righteous, but those that have been made righteous in the presence of God by the blood of Christ stand before God and they begin to enjoy Him forever. So we stand between these two margins of this place called time. Now within those margins, God has revealed Himself to us. And in this story, the entire thing turns and changes in Genesis chapter 3. It was good, it was perfect, it was not broken, and then Genesis 3 hits... And sin enters the world. Why didn't God intervene there? Why doesn't God stop Eve and Adam from partaking in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, we learned something early on about God that is his chief value within time. And his chief value is love. God is love. 
Now, this is hard to understand. How can God be love and this exist? Well, love cannot be forced on anyone. Love is a choice that God has divinely given you. So we get the opportunity to choose to love God or to, in rebellion, rebel against God. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we've all walked away from God choosing not to love Him and instead choosing sin, which brings the wage of sin, which is death and destruction, Romans 6, 23, in case you're trying to keep up. So we now serve in a world that is bound by time with a God who's sovereign over time, whose chief value is love. Therefore, he doesn't always intervene within the evils of this world, but he does make a promise and gives us a hope amidst the evil. You see, we had all turned and walked towards sin, Genesis 3, but God promised that he would not leave the world to be defined by eternity in that sin. Instead, he would send a Messiah and a Savior that would intersect it. So God doesn't immediately eliminate all of the evil in the world. Instead, he allows it within the construct of time with his sovereignty being over time, knowing that he's going to send his son into time. So instead of ridding the field of all of its evil immediately, which means there's no hope for any of us because all of us are in sin, he sends his son into time to walk amongst us, to live amongst us, to love and care for us. And in that, he does for us what we could not do. He brings a kingdom that parallels and works against the broken kingdom that we already experience and see. Are you still tracking with me? What's God doing? Well, he's bringing a kingdom. And in that kingdom, it's called hope. He brings this offer of salvation to whosoever would believe, not on the basis of their merit or their promised future better behavior, but in the basis of his work and goodness and grace and he offers salvation and then we get these parables like the wheat and the tares familiar with it where we have wheat that's of the kingdom and tares that's of this broken world and they're growing together and the harvesters come and they go should we separate the tares from the wheat and the owner says no no, no don't don't separate it because you may uproot some wheat in the process instead wait until i come and i'll sort it out, separating the wheat from the chaff. And then in Matthew 25, we get this promise that that's exactly what God is going to do, that there's a date and time where he says, enough, the trumpet blows, he comes, and everyone in history is brought before his judgment seat, and they're separated into two groups, the living and the, and you can bank that on that day, every injustice done under heaven, within time, will be brought to the just judgment seat of the Savior. And in that moment, it'll either be accounted to Christ's cross or Christ's judgment. So what's the hope for the believer? The, the hope for the believer is that within time, we are wheat amongst tares, and it's our job to be light and darkness and salt to the earth. It's our job in this season not to make national statements, but to love our neighbors in a way that represents the kingdom of God that's coming, that is not perishing, that's growing, that has hope in the midst of a hopeless time. And so I, I, I want to submit to you that what the world needs right now from the church is not statements about prayer, but actual prayer. Like, I don't need to know you're praying. I just need you to pray. We, we don't need statements about what needs to change in the world. We need people of action that go out and live in that change and live as citizens of that kingdom of change to their neighborhoods and to their neighbors and to their schools. This is the difference. It's easy to tweet some crap that you don't actually intend to follow through on. You will not change the world with a Facebook post this week. You will not change the, the world by giving us your view on the political system and landscape. It's not going to change anything. But if you are a kingdom citizen, 
and you take up your cross and follow Jesus and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the people that he's called you to be, and you love your neighbor, you don't think that's going to change the world. It may change your neighborhood. And if you change your neighborhood by the power of God and the Spirit of God through the gospel of Christ, next thing you know, you might even change the block. And if you can change the block, then maybe you can reach the school. And if you reach the school, maybe you can reach the city. If you reach the city, maybe you can reach the state. And if you reach the state, maybe we can reach a nation. If we can reach a nation, maybe we can reach a world with the gospel of Jesus because his kingdom is coming. And I know right now in the midst of this evil, Many of us think this is all there is. It's just terrible. But what I want you to know is this is a vapor. And while it looks like God is not intervening in the vapor, he's got a plan that is so much bigger than it. And he's at work for good. And his glory will be seen. And in the end of time, all of it will be brought. Not not because it wasn't painful. Not because it didn't cause us to have questions. These kinds of weeks give me great questions and concerns in my spirit. In the end, we can trust that all of time, will be brought to a glorious end that speaks to a praise that will echo for eternity around this world. So believer, people of God, rise up as a kingdom citizen and let's represent more than the country you were born in. Let's represent the kingdom that you've been reborn into. And let's be kingdom citizens that represent the kingdom to come that is filled with hope in the midst of a hopeless time in the world. When the life and the world get dark around us, the light shines bright followers of Jesus, we need Christ in you like never before. So it may not fix it, but you need to understand, God will work through it, and in spite of the evil that was intended, good will come out of it for his glory in eternity. He's a faithful God that can do so, and you can bank on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we come before you now to open up your word. Some of us with heavy hearts, some of us with disenfranchised hearts, some of us just numb some of us angry, some of us scared, some of us fearful. And God, at the end of the day, human words cannot solve the world's problems. We need your intervention. We need your hand, not just providentially, but miraculously to step in. And God, we we pray now that you would do powerful things, that you would bring glory and beauty out of ashes that we can't bring. God, we pray that we would understand that You're not an absent God, a distant God, a God that doesn't care, but you're a God who loves and desires that all would turn in love towards you you're not an unjust God in that love because you set a time where all will stand before you and the injustice we've lived in will either be accounted to Jesus or it will be justly a condemnation on us so we thank you for the hope and we thank you for the fact that you've sown this kingdom in the midst of a broken world and we ask God now that as your kingdom citizens we would not waste time because it's passing away but we would invest time for the kingdom that is to come so that in our short vapor of a life here, your kingdom and your eternity would lay bare in the relationships and in the conversations and in the people that we exist around. We declare our dependency upon you. We ask for you to meet with us in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to uh, the book of Ruth. Can we pivot out of that? That's heavy. Anybody still with me? Ruth chapter 3 is where we've gotten to. It's taken us five weeks to get here. This is a little love story that has significant implications on teaching us about the character of God and teaching us about what it means to be the people of God. We've done character studies on two of the main characters, Ruth and Boaz, the last couple of weeks. We've looked at what it looks like to be a woman of honor and character. We've looked at what it means to be a man of honor and character, and you came back. Amen. And now we're going to pivot to chapter 3. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, just to give you some background, they both happen 
uh, chapter 2, in the morning, in a house, midday, in a field, and then in the evening, back in the house. Uh, chapter 3 is in an evening at the house, then it's going to pivot to the winnowing or threshing floor at night, and then it's going to end the next morning at the house. So we've got similar stories across two chapters, but it's not consecutive days or one full 24-hour period. What we're going to learn in the in this story is there's a good amount of time that has passed by between chapter 2 and chapter 3, and there's reason for that and the actions that we're going to see in our third character in the story named Naomi, who's the mother-in-law of Ruth. Uh, she's come back bitter. She's changed her name. She no longer wants to be known as Naomi, which means pleasant. She'd rather be called Mara because life has been bitter. In her mind, God is unjust and unfair. He's dealt harshly with her and kind towards others. Any of you ever been there? You begin looking around in your pain and you begin to think that God is gracious to them but not been gracious to you. And you may think you deserve that kind of ungracious attitude or posture from God, but nonetheless, you sit comparing yourself to everybody else around you going, this isn't fair, this is not fair that they get grace and I get wrath, that they get good things even though they've not sown good seed, and I seem to be trying to do good things for God and all I get is hardship and difficulty that has come back. Anybody relate to that emotion? Great. So in Ruth 3, I've entitled this sermon, Good Intentions, Bad Advice. Good Intentions, Bad Advice, because that's what we're going to see in chapter 3. Naomi, who was bitter, at the end of chapter 2, ends it with going, begins chapter 2 with, God isn't good, God doesn't care, God isn't paying attention, or if he is, he's being harsh towards me. He, she ends chapter 2 like a lot of us do. God is good. God is great. He's always faithful. He's always been there. How can we not praise him? How can we not see his hand at work? He's always been near to us. Anybody had a manic day like that? You began the day going, God doesn't care. And you end the day going, man, God cares about it all. You begin the day going, God's not near. And then you end the day going, man, God's so near. If he got any closer, like we couldn't breathe. Anybody have one of them? So we begin this day with a woman, Naomi, who has good intentions, but she gives terrible advice. And some of you have experienced that. If you're single, I'm just going to submit to you that you've got to go through at least 146 rounds. It's not biblical. It's not uh, been polled. It's just an estimate. 146 rounds of bad advice from good-intentioned people in your life before it works out. And you've, you've experienced it. People that just, they mean well, and they say stupid stuff. And you're like, why? I why would you do that? Like, like, why would you recommend them? Why would you put me in that situation? I get they were a nice guy, but they're weird and they smell like canned cheese. Why would you do that to me? And, and, and that's kind of what's going to happen here. And God in his sovereignty is going to work all of this thing out. Ruth chapter 3, let's pick it up together in verse 1. It says this, One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. There's a lot in that statement. We'll look at it in a second in greater detail. Boaz is a close relative of yours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So that gives us a time stamp. When Ruth and Naomi come in, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, we know that, and we know that Boaz is generous towards Ruth, allows her to, throughout that harvest season, which likely lasts three or four weeks, uh, to glean gleanings in the field, to gather what she would need for the dry season for her and Naomi. So it's likely been around a month since this initial encounter with Boaz. Naomi obviously believes that this thing is not progressing fast enough. So she decides that a third party needs to accelerate it with an energy drink. 
So she comes in on fire going, all right, enough's enough. You need some rest. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Let's make this happen. This is what happens a lot with Christian people. We look at single Christian people and we're like, they, that person over there loves Jesus. You love Jesus. Why shouldn't this work? And as a single person, you're going, there's a lot of reasons why this shouldn't work. There's a whole lot of weirdos. Have you not ever heard the song Jesus Freak? And let's ex- exercise the word freak. There's a lot of people who are freaks who love Jesus by God's grace, but that don't mean their freak show needs to come and live with me. <laughs> but nonetheless, Naomi's like, we need to move this thing forward. Verse 3, now do as I tell you. Take a bath. <laughs> it's good friends. Sometimes you need one that looks at you and is like, look, brush your teeth. You have halitosis. Like you need, you need to... Smells like you've been sucking on poop, and, and I, you don't want to go out of the house like that. All, all of us in 2020 at some point needed someone to call us and be like, take a bath. Four days is enough. <laughs> Sorry. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Okay, uh, four quick things, or three quick things about what happens. First, Naomi comes in and says, we have a problem. And she diagnoses the problem. Here's the problem. Let me give it to you in a modern day translation. You're single, and I have a responsibility to change it. How many of you single people love people who come to you and they're like, all right, we have a problem. You're single, and I got a guy. You're single, and I got a girl. She's real nice, real nice. How many of you think whenever your friend and you're single comes to you with this, how many of you are like, oh, yay? Most of you, like like a few of you are at a point where you're like, look, if they got a heartbeat, if they've been to church a couple times, if they don't swear and they love their mother, all right, like, Help me out. But majority of single people are not looking for you to make them your project. Just want to extend that. They're not looking for you, like, like they're not looking for you to be their hands-on Christian. Mingle. If they wanted your help, they probably would have asked. Because the people that want your help ask. Just throwing it out there. So Naomi says, here's the problem. You're single. And I have a responsibility to change it. And she uh, guides it in the big theme of chapter 3. The big theme of chapter 3 is rest. You need rest. You've day in and day out worked hard for us. And life would be easier in our culture, in our context with the husband. And we know that to be true in some senses because Ecclesiastes talks about uh, when you have two, you get double return for your labor. You can keep warm at night. And then we like to have that famous verse that we hear at our wedding, a cord of... Three strands is not easily torn apart. So there is a sense where you understand when you're single that life is easier when you have a helpmate, when you have someone at work in the trench with you because dual income families have a little bit more money. Amen? Anybody experienced that? Like you went single income to dual income? You're like, wow, we still got something in the account. Like like it's a a nice thing. You can get more done. Like people that are side by side in marriage, they're unified, they're on task together, they're working together. They get a lot of stuff done. If one's working and one stays at home, you come home and 
you know, the kids, like, they don't have boogers sometimes crusted on their face. Sometimes they do because it's been a tough day. There's not laundry in the floor because uh, one of you stayed home and did that. And I'm not telling you it's the man or the woman. I'm telling you that some men stay home to the glory of God and women go to work and some men go to work and women stay home to the glory of God. But together they get more done. That's the point. Are you tracking with me? They get more done. Now, here's what's funny. I'm saying all that, and the married people are like, but wait, 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 wait. It didn't get easier because they don't go home. They, they make noises at night. They rob me of my sleep. They roll over in the morning with requests for service before I even wake up. So the single people look at the married people like, you're blessed. And some of us married people have been married long enough to look at the single people and be like, y'all blessed. Ain't nobody telling you when to go to bed. Ain't nobody telling you you got to get up. I mean, like, you do what you want to do. No one's bossing you around or suggesting or giving you that look that lets you know that though the verbal suggestion has not come, there has been nonetheless a suggestion <laughs> about what you should and should not be doing. This chapter is about rest. It ends in Romans, uh, not Romans, it ends in Ruth chapter 3 with Naomi back in the house saying this. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled this thing today. So their unrest has now become his problem, and he takes it on his shoulders and desires to give them rest. Now let me give you a quick biblical survey of this understanding of rest. The Bible teaches us that you can make more money, that you can take more naps, that you can get more sleep, that you can have less responsibilities and less stress in your life and still be tired. Some of you are tired, and it has nothing to do with napping and sleeping patterns. Some of you are tired, and it has nothing to do with the amount of money or the lack of money that you have in your bank account. The Bible teaches that it is possible to have everything that the world says that you need and be at unrest within your spirit and be in just as much torture and turmoil as if you didn't have enough sleep or didn't have enough money or whatever the world could offer as a salve. At the end of the day, the Bible teaches that rest is a gift from God. The nation of Israel, all the way back in the book of Exodus, had no rest. They worked seven days a week. They were brutally oppressed by their oppressors in Egypt. God broke them free. They wandered in the wilderness. And his promise to them in the book of Deuteronomy is that he would give them rest, that they would find rest with them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and chapter 9 speak of this rest. So much so that God wanted them to understand that rest alone comes from him, that he established this thing called the Sabbath which was a day where they were to stop working and understand that no matter how much they did work, it's all for naught if God doesn't bless the work, provide the energy for the work, and bless the gain that comes off of the work. So you rest in the fact that God is God, that you are not, that he is good, that he is Lord, and you rest trusting that at the end of the day, you're not your provider, he's your provider, that you're not the caretaker of your journey, that he's the caretaker and Lord and leader of your journey. You're not your own shepherd, he's the shepherd. And so we rest in the fact that we are not a people who are orphaned, but we are a people that have been rebought by the blood of Jesus and are a people for his possession and treasure. Are you, are you tracking with me? So we have the Sabbath as a reminder of the rest that comes from God. On top of that, you have the Feast of Booths, which is a Jewish celebration that's meant to mark the rest that God promised the nation of Israel that he would give them in the promised land that he was going to hand over to them. So what we see in this story is a concern, the problem. The problem's not just you're not, the problem from Naomi is not just you're single. The problem is you need rest. And culturally speaking, in her mind, the remedy is this man named Boaz 
who is a kinsman redeemer, who's a kinsman redeemer. So she lays out the problem, and then she lays out the facts to give her argument some credence. Here's the problem. You need rest. You're tired. You need Boaz. And here's the facts. Look at what happens in the next verse. Boaz is a close relative of ours. That's a fact. He's been very kind by letting you gather grain. That's a fact with the other young women that were in his field. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Guess what we call that? A fact. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes, and go to the threshing floor. So she lays it out for him. You need rest. You're not going to have rest until you have a husband. That's her belief. So take a bath, put on perfume, go down to the threshing floor, wait on him to uh, not be completely uh, in his sound mind. Talk about that again in a second. And then pop in and say hi. What could go wrong? Okay. There's a problem. She lays the facts out, and she gives a prescription. And I've entitled the prescription, This Could Get Sketchy. So if you're taking notes, the prescription is where good advice or good intention turns rotten. This could get sketchy. I don't have that one, but that's good. Uh, Boaz is a near kinsman and needs, no, not that one either, the facts. After the facts, we got this thing called the prescription. There it is. This could get sketchy. Amen, amen, amen. All right, here's what I want you to know before we jump into this. Good people are capable of giving you terrible advice. I had a mom. She loves Jesus. She's a great woman of God. She trained me to know the Lord, and I remember the worst advice she ever gave me. There was a young man who had a girlfriend, and they were in a field off near our house, and something really bad happened to them because they were out in the field alone after 10, which... According to my dad, nothing good happens when you're in high school with another girl after 10. So my mom, not wanting me to find myself in a similar circumstance, said, Look, Russ, if you ever just want to spend some time in a car with a girl, and you need a place to like not be disturbed to spend some time in a car with a girl, just pull into our driveway. Did you run that by the girl's dad? Was he good with me coming in the driveway for a long time? Like, like my mom loved the Lord. She's a good woman. She had good intentions. She wanted me to be safe. But that was the worst advice I've ever heard from my mother. Just pull in the driveway and you can make out. I'm never going to look at my son and be like, hey, you got a girl. You need some alone time. Just pull into our driveway. We'll keep the lights off. No, I'm putting the floodlight on. I'm going to come hang out. I'm going to come sit in the middle. Let's talk. How's it going? Is he being nice? Is he keeping his pants on? He better. He better be keeping his britches. If he starts trying to get his britches, you come and tell me, and I'll, I'll do something that makes sure he keeps some britches on with my belt. He ain't too old. Come on. Good intentions, bad advice. What's Ruth's advice? Okay, it starts here. Take a bath, change your clothes, put on perfume. Not necessarily sketchy. Okay, probably should have some good hygiene. This language in 2 Samuel is seen in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. King David, after losing his son, wears the clothes of mourning and is in the process of mourning. But then he takes a bath, changes his clothes, puts on perfume, goes to the temple and worships God, and then he begins to eat again and move on. The idea of what's happening in the first part is likely this. Naomi has been uh, mourning uh, the loss of her husband and her sons. Ruth 
has promised to be with Naomi through whatever comes in life. That means if Naomi is mourning, guess who else is mourning? Ruth. And more than likely, they've been wearing the clothes of mourning that outwardly would demonstrate to the world, we're not okay. No, we're not moving on. What's Naomi saying in the beginning of the advice? She's saying, it's time to put off the clothes of mourning and move on. This is such a hard thing to figure out when you go through tragedy. You may not visibly be wearing the clothes of mourning, but many of you are wearing the clothes of mourning in the way that you look at your future, in the way that you think about your present, and you've not been able to move forward. And, and in moving forward, what's, what's a challenge is there's this feeling that you're being unfaithful, that you're forgetting them, that you're going to move on, and that, that you don't have permission to have joy, that you don't have permission to have life. But at the end of the day, graciously, God blesses us with people in our lives, and he removes people from our lives. At the end of the day, what you need and the common denominator that we all must have in life is God. If you have a relationship with God, then you're given permission to mourn and not be okay. But in due time and due season, there comes a time to put off the clothes of mourning and to begin in the grace of God to move forward. And for some of you, I believe you need to hear that today. The time for weeping, the time for anger, the time for sitting, the time to be bitter has come and gone, and it's okay to take a bath, to put on clothes, and to walk into the future that the Lord leads you into. Are you tracking with me? So this isn't bad advice. In fact, this is good advice. It speaks more to the character of Boaz. I mean, Boaz, if she's wearing the clothes of mourning, has over the last month not made a further move towards getting to know her more, likely because he's respecting her boundary. She's not ready to move forward yet. So he then backs up instead of pushes in. And, and this brings me to a reminder that comes in the Song of Solomon. In Song of Solomon it says this, Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is... Man, this is a lost art, isn't it? For all of us, usually it's go really, really, really fast. Make a lot of mistakes, create a lot of baggage, and then if somehow God's grace works it out to where you get to an altar and you say, I do, and then you complain and get angry at each other for the next 10 years and come into counseling where you need pastors and other people to help you work through it, th th then we'll you know, hopefully survive it to the very end. Instead, the idea is that it's slow. So if you're dating, let me give you the process. You ready? It's slow, slow, slow. The younger you are, if your parents are giving you permission to consider dating, guess what you do? Slow. It's really slow. Guess what it's filled with? Boundaries. Lots of boundaries. And, and you don't let, if, if you're a parent and you're choosing to allow your kids to date, they don't determine the boundaries. You do. You're the parent. Some of you are like, well, they're 17. They ain't 18 yet. You better work at it and put some boundaries in there. Well, they don't listen to me. Do they eat your food? We're having a starve out then. They're going to call DSS on me. Let them go into the foster care system and let's see how long they make, they make it. God's first plan is grace. His second plan is wrath. Sometimes they need to experience some difficulty. Amen, Sonia? Some of y'all, look, we've lost our backbone as parents. Like, let me, let me help you out with a few more just, just free gifts. It's not your kid's job to determine whether or not they can date or not. If they're under 18, it's your responsibility. That's old-fashioned. No, it's not. It's biblical. You, you are a covering for your kids. 
It's your job to determine who comes through the gate and who doesn't come through the gate. And for some of us, we've given up this right to be parents so that we could be friends. Look, your kids can get friends in a lot of directions, but they can't get another parent. You're in a unique position that's not replaceable as being, like, like, if you've got to choose, be a friend or be a parent, this should be a really easy job. I can't tell you how many times this week my 10-year-old told me she hated me and I'm ruining her life. And I look at that like, oh, I'm meeting the requirements to be a parent this week. (laughs) Way to go. I'm not trying to be vindictive or mean. I'm trying to do for them what I hope your parents would do for you, and that is look out for them in their best interest because short-sightedness and youthfulness doesn't always allow you to make the wisest decisions. So let me be a boundary and a filter that helps you understand what you should or should not do. My daughter got in the car the other day. She told me she had a boyfriend. I said, no, you don't. She's like, well, Daddy, I I like that guy. And and she got really embarrassed. I was like, well, that's great. You like him. You be friends with him. You are not dating him because y'all ain't going nowhere. One, two, he doesn't have a job. And three, I don't know if he loves Jesus. I haven't interviewed his father. I haven't interviewed his mother. I haven't (laughs) taken in like some prerequisites to consider if they were a good match for our family or not. And there's going to come a day where you're going to make that decision for you. But I'm going to make sure either you rebel against the boundaries you knew clearly in my house or you're grateful for the boundaries that we established so that you could have some ethics whenever you begin to build your house. Don't awaken love before it's time. What what does that mean? It's slow, 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 slow. And then there comes a time where it moves fast. Boaz is older. Ruth is older. They've been married before. So it's slow, and then it's really fast. Why? We're we're not kicking tires and young anymore. And so when you're you're older and you've been through it, it's slow. Especially if it's a second marriage a relationship after marriage. Let me, let me be very clear. It's really slow at first. You know why? Because it's so easy to go back into a cohabitation-type relationship because it's what you were used to within marriage and it's what you probably are missing. And so what ends up happening is we get this cesspool of dating in our community where the older you get, the more scandalous you become. You won't believe some of the horror stories I heard doing ministry at nursing homes. The perversion. I mean, like, and, and I, I'm like, grandpas, you know, like, what are you doing? My great-granddad used to tell me, do not do as I do, do do as I say. And I'm like, that's a whole lot of dung. So it's slow. If you're, if you're dating, it's slow. And then what? As you're running after Christ, as you're loving Jesus, getting godly counsel, surrounding yourself with healthy boundaries, there comes a moment where you're like, yeah, I think this is right. And then it's fast. What does that mean? We get engaged. We, we move towards commitment and marriage. And then the sexual relationship comes. That's the way the Bible prescribes it. Your brain and your body are actually built up for sex to not be God, what sex is for a lot of us for sex not to be gross that's what sex is for a lot of us but for sex to be a gift that's what the bible calls it within the confines of marriage between two individuals it's a gift it's not god it's not gross it's a gift it's something to be cherished and it's a part of a healthy marriage relationship my my whole point in saying this is boaz notices that ruth is not at a point to be pursued to date to to go after so he is friendly and kind but he's not crossing boundary lines too soon he's not awakening love before it's time the same should be true in our dating relationships so there's a prescription the prescription starts with take a bath get your clothes on and put on perfume throw off the garments of mourning then 
Look at what it goes on to say. Go down to the threshing floor where men would sleep during the winnowing season. Let me be clear. This is where the advice goes rotten. Because what would happen after harvest season is the men would go and thresh out wheat in an area where the wind couldn't blow it out of its area so they could keep the harvest together. And men would work sun up to sundown. They would eat their meals there. And then it would be like a, a wild partying type of night for many of the men that lacked character who were up in that area. Prostitutes would come out. And it was so commonly known that the book of Hosea actually speaks to this. O people of Israel, do not rejoice as other nations do, for you have been unfaithful to your God. Hiring yourselves out like prostitutes, let me give you an example of what I mean, worshiping other gods on every... So what's going on at the threshing floor? Well, at night, they would eat, they would drink after a full day's work. They then would have prostitutes that would come in, and many would wake up, and the prostitutes would in the morning make the walk of shame out of the threshing floor areas, while the men woke up for another day of work at the threshing floor away from their family, providing for them. This is the unethical business trip for many a man. Where it's not just work, it's a lot of pleasure. Or they've put in a mile rule for their ethics to justify their childish behavior. And so Naomi, who loves Ruth, decides she's going to send her into a vulnerable position where she does not belong. To walk amongst a group of women who ethically and in her character she does not associate with. So go down to the threshing floor, wait for Boaz to be in a vulnerable position after he's eaten and drinking his fill. Now, many of us are like, oh, here we go. Boaz is getting drunk. No, that's not what the Hebrews suggest. Boaz probably partook in an adult beverage called wine. And yes, some of you are like, well, the wine wasn't fermented and didn't have alcohol in it. That's bumpus. That's what we like to say to make it fit our southern narrative in the Bible Belt. But that, that's not actual stuff. I've spent a lot of time studying that, tried to convince myself of it. Here's my point. The Bible forbids drunkenness. It doesn't mean if you have a drink, you're demonic possessed and of the devil however some of you it may be permissible to have a drink but it is not profitable to you to have a drink if you have a history of alcoholism in your family let me go ahead and tell you it may be permissible but you shouldn't discover whether or not you have the same gene and whether or not it would be profitable to you just stay away from it beyond that as believers we are called not just to consider our freedoms but what would be a stumbling block to everyone else around us which means i need to be wise if i'm partaking in something that's a freedom for me that's not a freedom for another brother or sister that could be a stumbling block to them so the idea is terrible go down the threshing floor where the, when the prostitutes go after he's eaten and drank not to the point of drunkenness but to the point of fatigue and tiredness go and present yourself to him and then it says uncover his feet What's that about? Wait till he goes to sleep, uncover his feet, and lay down beside him. What could go wrong? Is uncover his feet some kind of weird Jewish Hebrew like suggestion of something sketchy like on late night TV? What, what, are we, what are we dealing with with this? Well, sometimes we overthink the Bible and it's very simple. How many of you are married to someone that when they get in the bed, they do this? And then you're laying there with no covers on. And you're debating, do I grab it and begin a war? Or do I lay here in the draft of the night, freezing, praying and hoping that they share me a sliver of the covers because they get warm? It's like dumb and dumber. You're riding on the moped, you're freezing, you get off, you're like, man, it'd be great to have some gloves. You're like, oh, I have three pairs. Oh, okay, of course you have three pairs. You had all three blankets on you freezing over here well naturally speaking if you want to wake somebody up gently apparently 
and the, and the threshing floor, if you uncover their feet, the draft will come in, you get cold feet. Guess what happens when you get cold feet? You wake up. And when you wake up, you see a woman lying at your feet, and you're like, oh, of course, woman of God. Would thou want to go to the temple and worship the Lord with me? We can exchange vows, be married in holy matrimony. It'll be a great experience. Because that's what happens when a man gets woken up at midnight with a woman laying at his feet. Good intentions, bad, <laughs> terrible advice. What could go wrong? Verses 5 and 6. Ruth, here in this plan, says, I will do everything you say. Applaud your commitment, but if their name isn't Jesus, and this isn't open, it's an opinion, and it should be filtered through this and Jesus. No matter how mature and how much older they are, it should be filtered through this. Because sometimes good mamas tell you to pull in the driveway. She's going to kill me that I've shared that with you. I will do exactly as you say. Ruth replied, so she went down to the threshing floor that night, followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he was, in the words of Phil from Doug Dynasty, happy, 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 he laid down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying in his feet. No, duh. <laughs> Who are you, he asked. It was dark. After all, she needed to bathe and change her clothes, apparently. And she says, I am your servant Ruth. Now, in every other address recorded in chapter 2 between Boaz and Ruth, she's referred to herself as a Moabite or a widow, but she's not referred to him as a servant. This was a language of saying, I am Ruth, who you know, and I am available. The timing's right. Now, the place in which the timing is crossing is awkward, but the timing is right. Look at what he goes on to say. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up, turned. He was surprised to find a woman lying there. Who are you? I am your servant, Ruth. She replied, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Some of you are paying attention. Chapter 2, Boaz says, take shelter under my wings. Chapter 3, she's saying, give me that shelter. He's made an uh, intention to take care of her, and she's saying, yes, take care of me, but not just as a friend or a distant relative who married your, you know, family member. No, no, take care of me as your, as your spouse. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer, verse 10, which was at that moment the last night that Boaz would ever have warm feet. Anyway, it's a good, good joke. <laughs> the Lord bless you, my daughter, verse 10. Boaz exclaimed, you are showing me even more, even, even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. What a weird thing to say, but let's, let's keep reading. There's some context. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. That's another weird thing to say. Why I call her daughter? He called her daughter in chapter 2. Like, if I, like, I looked at Morgan, and I wasn't like, you know, daughter. And, it, and, and like, we're way away from that Soundgarden song of, don't call me daughter. Not, like, like, that's not a, a, it's not like it was like a popular song or something. Like, I don't, why that? Well, if you study the Hebrew, what you'll discover is this was a term of endearment. It was a term that was meant to give not like weird, like icky, like sibling sense, but like a, we, I, I, I care for you, I love you, and I just culturally don't understand it. So 
We'll move on. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. I'll do what's necessary. Your reputation already speaks for itself. I'm honored. I'm humbled. Verse 12. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who is more closely related to you than me. Now there's a problem. So what, what, is, what happens? Boaz sees that Ruth is there, that she's moved on from mourning, that now it's the time for progressing in the relationship. He's overwhelmed with joy because she's reciprocating the feelings that he's expressed in chapter 2. It's now time and it's lining up, but he recognizes legally that he's not in first position. He's in second position. There's a closer family member, and we can maybe presume so far as what he's saying in verse 10 that this other family member is perhaps younger, maybe even more affluent than Boaz, and might be a better suitor as far as comfort and care if he were to redeem instead of him, Boaz, older, stepping in to redeem. And so, so what does he feel? He feels overwhelmingly honored to be in the presence of Ruth, and to be given the opportunity to walk with Ruth in it. When married people, you start out praising God and thanking God for your spouse. They are unique. You, you plot and scheme ways to pursue them and to date them. You come, I mean, you do things that if the dude saw what you had, like, like, you would get rasped for. I mean, you were writing letters. You would leave a flower. You would drive over before they woke up and clean the car. I, like, you did any and everything you could just to subtly say, you are unique, and I am honored that I get to date you, that I get to be around you. You send them texts with emojis. I mean, so, some of you haven't cried in 13 years, but yet you're sending heart emojis left and right when you're dating that girl because she's unique, and you just want her to know that you're caught up in your feelings, boo. That, that you've been... <laughs> Y'all twisted up in the game. It's Queen Latifah, never mind. <laughs> and then what happens over time? The gratitude wanes. So does the passion. So does the chemistry. You assume their presence instead of being grateful for their presence. And what ends up happening is you have a cold relationship where you're riding in the car with someone that you're not grateful for anymore, even though they are a unique gift that God has given you. Gratitude fuels passion. It helps for you to remind yourself that they've seen a lot of the worst of you and they're still there. Be grateful. Amen? And when you're grateful and you express it, it's amazing as you express gratitude how much more pleasant the entire relationship becomes. No one wants to be around someone that thinks that basically you're there to be their servant. You're there to be the crutch on which they lean on. And it's always them bearing your burden of having to be around your presence with you. No, no one wants to be there. But, but when you're grateful and you express gratitude, it grows. Boaz is grateful for the opportunity, even though he's got to go through a difficult process to get there. So there's a blessing and there's a promise. The promise is, I'm going to protect your name. I'm going to deal with this legally. And here's the challenge. The third thing that's there is the challenge. There's another kinsman redeemer that's there, but he gives an assurance. And what's the assurance? Look at it with me. Uh, he looks at her and stay here tonight. And in the morning, I will talk to him if he is willing to redeem you very well. Why would he say stay here tonight? Is he trying to make an advance? On Ruth, is this a character-compromising moment? Many of us would say, oh, well, here it is. Here he is. He's just a man. Because some of you have used that excuse for being stupid. We're just people. Yeah. Don't be stupid. It's not an excuse to be dumb. We're just humans. St stop listening to stupid songs, okay? And, and making them your theology. Baby, you and me ain't nothing. No, you're not. You're made in the image of God, okay? 
Like, stop listening to some dum-dums from California that got a rock band together, and now they're fat and dads and would take back half of what they sing about. <laughs> so dumb. I had an uncle one time tell me he was living by the lyrics to kid rock songs, and at 13, I looked at him and said, that's stupid. <laughs> some of you are like, I live to the, my life mottos to system of a down. That's stupid. Like, I love you enough to tell you that's dumb, okay? Disorder, disorder, disorder. You're dumb. That's dumb. Gosh. Get truth. Not some dumb song. Y'all didn't ask for this. It went in the notes. It's free. Someone apparently needed it. You'll thank me later. Or maybe you won't. Is this some sketchy moment where Boaz is just a man and he acts dumb? No. He knows if he sends her back out, what's going on around all the threshing floors? Prostitution. Is it safe for her to try and make a journey in the dark back? No. So what does he tell her to do? Lie at my feet till morning. Is that so that he can, you know, like get closer and closer an inch and like their toes touch and then, you know. No. In fact, the, the Hebrew says something completely different. Boaz, according to the New American Commentary, Boaz tries to pacify Ruth with some immediate counsel. He advises her to spend the night there to guard against any sexual misinterpretation. However, he avoids the word sakab, which is the uh, Hebrew word for a sexual encounter, preferring to speak of lodging or spending the night, which is the word lin. He uses the same word that Ruth used in 116 when she committed herself to lodging wherever Naomi would lodge. This is more about protection than anything else. By his speech as a whole and his choice of words in particular uh, in chapter 2, he will not take advantage of Ruth. That's what he's determined. I'm not going to take advantage of you. That's what character is. I can be in the middle of the night and I'm the same person that I am at high noon in the middle of the day. That's your character. A lot of you have good character in church, but you're not a person of good character. You're just a good, you're just a good person of good character in opportune moments. And you can fool everybody, but let me be very clear. You do not fool God. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You reap what you sow. That's not just some weird karma game. You get grace. But if you sow disunity into your marriage, your, your marriage is going to have distrust built into it. If you're ungrateful and you sow seeds of ungratefulness in your marriage, you're not going to find it to be a compassionate, gracious, good, healthy relationship. The water is green where you water it, son. So stop watering the neighbor's yard and start watering your own. Does this make sense? That was practical. This is not a compromising moment. Boaz intends to give encouragement. So we're out in the threshing floor. This thing ends the next morning at breakfast. So Ruth, verse 14, lied at his feet until morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. Why? Because she's in a compromising position, but she's not a woman of compromise. For Boaz said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor because he knew the reputation that was for women there. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops. Many believe this to be an omer of barley. It would have been around 30 pounds of barley. He again is being overwhelmingly generous to her. And put it into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then she returned to town. He, he gave her a story that was honest. I came to get more grain from Boaz. They left before it was sunlight to protect her name even though they were put into this compromising position by someone other than them. They didn't take the out and go, well, my mother-in-law made me do it. <laughs> my circumstances made me do it. Stop doing that. No. You have a volition and a will, and you have the Holy Spirit. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Let me give you the translation of that question. Did he put a ring on it? 
Did he take responsibility for you? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. Verse 17, and she added, he gave me six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Oh, his character shines again here. He's a man of character. How do we know that? He has no concern or need to be concerned over Ruth's mother-in-law. Yet not only has he given Ruth assurance that he's going to do everything he can to give her rest, he sends word back to the mother-in-law, and I'm taking you in too. You will get rest too, Mara. You will get rest too, Naomi. This is what we call grace. And this is what God does. He invites us into his rest. Jesus comes bringing a kingdom, and he opens with the words early in his ministry, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is... And this is the ultimate Redeemer's desire, that you and I would find real rest. Not just physical rest, not just mental rest, but rest that resonates deep within the soul. Our prayer team is going to come forward and we're going to respond. And as we look in this little love story, there's this bigger love story that God would tell us. And it's the story of the fact that God loves you. He's the kinsman redeemer of all time. He has come to live the life you couldn't live and die the death that we deserve to die so that you and I could receive the life we didn't deserve and live in a place that we don't deserve to be. We talked about the craziness of this week and how there's a day coming where Jesus will return. Matthew 25 speaks of it. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff, the wheat and the tares. The living from the dead, those who are in Christ living, those who are without Christ dead. No matter what their self-righteousness was, none are righteous and can stack up to Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, we all need a Redeemer. His name is Jesus, and he offers himself to you today. And this big love story invites all of us to the Redeemer. So today, some of you are tired, and you need rest. I invite you to the gospel, that Jesus is the one who holds the rest you need, and he offers it to whosoever would ask and receive. Our prayer team's here. If you need to pray, be prayed over. We'd love to pray with you. If you need to give your life to Jesus, we invite you to do so. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand our feet.